So we're going to continue on in our Christmas series, and as Michael mentioned, this morning we are going to look at Jesus, the God-man. And you might recall that uh, our first week, Michael shared with us Jesus the Messiah. What are you sitting over there for? Uh, and he primarily recalled on Mark's gospel, where Mark is very, very intentional about revealing that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is the Messiah. And you might even remember from our look and our study of, of the Gospel of Mark how Mark's intention was to get us to the cross very, very quickly to show and to reveal how Jesus was the true Son of God and the Messiah. And of course, Michael revealed a bunch of the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled as the Messiah. And then last week... David shared with us how Jesus was the king, right? And, and David reminded us that Matthew's gospel really focuses on the kingdom of God, that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of David. He was the one whom the scepter would never depart, and that God's kingdom would live on for eternity. And of course, we know that Matthew was a tax collector, and he was Jewish, and he wrote in a very Jewish way, and he wrote to a very Jewish audience. And so it was very important that he identified that Jesus was of the lineage of David and that he was the rightful king. And this morning, this morning we're going to look at Jesus, the God-man. And we're going to spend a majority of our time in the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes more information and more detail about the birth of Jesus than the other Gospels do. And you might draw a parallel when we looked at Matthew and his background with Luke's background. Luke was a Gentile, and we know that he was a physician, right? And I wonder if maybe Luke gives us so much detail about the birth narrative of Jesus and his humanity because he was a physician. I mean, I can't say that for sure, but, but maybe. You know, that's one of the things I love about God's Word is that it is completely inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit you know, sat on the shoulders of all the, the men who wrote and inspired them to write their text. But at the same time, God uses the personalities and the traits of the men he created. We see that with a lot of the Pauline epistles. You see Paul's personality come out through his writings. You see how James is very Jewish in his text. And so Luke, in his gospel and in the book of Acts, gives us detail that probably is reflective of Luke the man, even though it was inspired by the Holy Spirit what to write. And we know at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he gives us the purpose for writing. He says, Dear Theophilus, I'm writing these things to you. He says he calls them most excellent. He was probably a government official of some sort. We don't know if Theophilus was necessarily Greek or Jewish. His name is not super descriptive. But maybe Luke gives this kind of information about the humanity of Jesus because Theophilus, his primary audience, needed to know that. And Luke tells us in verse 1 and verse 2, that he was very intentional about researching this and recording this in order so that his friend Theophilus might know that what he's been taught is true, that Jesus is the Messiah, the God-man. And so we're going to spend a majority of our time in Luke's gospel this morning. However, we're also going to look at Mark and John a little bit 
because we're going to also look at the God, the divine, the divinity of Jesus as well before we get into looking at his humanity. And I'm going to read a verse for you guys that you're going to hear a lot this morning. And you're going to hear it again in our songs after the message. And you guys know this because you've heard it every Christmas. And it's a wonderful prophecy. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name, what? Emmanuel. Which means... God with us. Matthew gives us that when he records that prophecy. He gives that, us that little bit of extra information that Emmanuel means God with us. I want us to just think about that for a second. God with us. That's how I'm going to structure our time this morning. I'm going to take God with us as a framework, as an outline for our presentation this morning. Now, let me be very clear. This is not something that you would establish systematic theology on. This is not something that you would use to inform your doctrine. The Bible doesn't scream what I'm about to share in terms of a structure. This is just simply for the purposes of our look at the God-man this morning. And so when we talk about God with us I'm going to focus on the God part first, Jesus' divinity and what Mark and John say about that. When we get to the with part, I'm going to focus on what Luke says about Jesus' humanity as he lived with us. And then when we get to the us, we'll see if maybe we can't just reflect and look at what we looked like and who we are apart from salvation in Christ Jesus, the world that God chose to insert himself into among us. So, God with us. What do we mean when we say Jesus was the God-man? You might recall maybe from Michael's presentation of Christology that Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. We call that the hypostatic union. That's the technical term. That's the technical term for Jesus having these two natures in one being, and it just kind of blows our human carnal minds, doesn't it? Well, hold on a second here. That math does not work. Two 100%? What? But it's true. At no point did Jesus ever become less God or less man. There was no circumstance. There was no situation. There was no cause, no reason, no moment where he was ever less God. No moment where he was ever less man. Now, some will argue, well, he didn't operate as God at times. He suspended his divinity and his rightful actions and things like that, his powers. Okay. So, didn't mean he was less God. 100% God and 100% man. So let's get into uh, our time here this morning. God, when I said God with us, what do Mark and John say about the divinity of Jesus? Turn with me to John, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. 
chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I'll go ahead and begin reading. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You think John's driving home a point here? All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So John tells us that Jesus existed in the beginning. Right? He was with God, and he also was God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's very distinct. We've probably referred here before as uh, to the, um, the Jewish Shema in Deuteronomy. Behold, Israel, the Lord your God is one. All things came into being, John says, through Jesus. He existed before creation. He was not created. He was the creator. And all things came into being through him. Now jump over to verses 14 and 15. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, John says. So what we see here is that Jesus is the Son of God and willingly became flesh to dwell among us. And so we get to experience for a moment as he walked among humanity, a minutia of God's glory. It says, we beheld his glory. Jesus existed before me, John the Baptist says. Well, wait a second here. I thought he was older. I thought John the Baptist was born before Jesus. But here he says he existed before me. Because Jesus is God and has always been Let's turn to John 14. John chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. Jesus is referring to and referencing his oneness with the Father, and he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. But Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. So what we see here is Jesus primarily having an exchange with, with Philip, and he says, if you know me, then you also know God the Father. He says, if you've seen me, 
then you've also seen God the Father. And he says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And then he concludes that, and he says, I don't speak my words, but the Father living in me does his work through me. Look at that. What a beautiful illustration of Jesus' divinity as part of the Godhead. I said we're going to spend a little bit of time in Mark. Flip over to Mark's Gospel. Mark and John don't specifically record the birth of Jesus, but they do begin their Gospels, as we've seen, with truth about Jesus' divinity. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Oh, he just comes right out of the gate, doesn't he? And that's what we've said. We've said about Mark's Gospel, he's going to move us to the cross as fast as he can to prove and to show and to reveal that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verses 21 and 28, if you would, of chapter 1. Well, 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into the convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. So what we see here is that Jesus taught in the synagogue, in the temple, and when the people heard his teaching, they were like, This is amazing. He teaches with such authority. Who is this guy? Right? And the demons declared, We know who you are. You're the Holy One. You're the Son of God. Mark shows us right there. Jesus is divinity. Jesus is God. You know, I can't imagine what it was like being in the temple or, or the synagogue with Jesus and, and hearing his teaching. You know, they had had the Torah and, the, and, and they had had the Old Testament, right? The law and the prophets. And they taught from them regularly. And they were steeped in the history. And Jesus comes in. And it's like, it's like when authors host book signings. Right? And they'll read a portion of their book for their audience. And when they read a portion of their book, you hear exactly what they meant when they authored it. You hear the inflection and the tone and the inferences and and you hear the emotion come out because they're the author and they're reading it the way they intended it to be read and understood. And you hear the text just come alive. This is like a book signing for Jesus. He's there in the temple and he's explaining what the Old Testament means. 
because he wrote it. It's his. It's about him. And then we won't, we won't flip to these, but Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 33 and 30, 45, uh, 13, 26, 14, 21 and 44, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. And we will turn to this one. Mark 15, 39. Mark 15, verse 39. And when the centurion, who was standing right in front of Jesus saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus referred to God as his Father over 150 times in the Gospels. Do you know that? Over 150 times he referred to God as his Father. That is his declaration that he is God. And so the reason God with us and the God part is important is because God had to be 100% God to pay the penalty for our sins because animal sacrifices were no longer going to cut it. And no human could elevate himself or herself to pay the penalty for sin. It had to be God himself to come in flesh and pay the penalty, to reverse the curse. We could not do it. And so God with us is important because it was him and Jesus was 100% God. Now, our second part this morning, I said that we're going to look at the humanity of Jesus. The with. God with us. What does Luke have to say about Jesus' birth? I mentioned earlier that we see the personalities of the writers come through and how how Matthew's audience was likely the Jews because Matthew was Jewish and he had a purpose in writing and how he wrote. And I said that Luke probably had a, a similar purpose and wrote the way he wrote because of who his audience was. I had, a, I had a meeting with a gentleman, uh, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, and he's involved in some new technology about uh, heartbeat identity. And it was fascinating the way he described it and began to explain it to me. And it's supposed to eventually serve as a replacement for having passwords and logins and all this other stuff. And he proceeds to explain to me, generally speaking, how it works. That each human heart is completely unique. That even though when we look at them and we look at the models, they all have the basic structure that every heart is unique. The orifices are just slightly different. The chambers are just a hair different. And they all have their own resonating and resonance. And they all behave in just slightly different ways. And he likened it to a room. He said, you're an architecture. 
He said, you'll be able to understand this. He said, take a room. You could have two rooms that are rectangles, and you could just put different materials on the wall, and sound will be different in there. You could just change the ceiling height by one inch, and each room is going to have its own slightly different signature. And he explained it so well, and I was like, wow, what a great way to come to my level and to discuss something that is completely foreign to me, right? Anatomy and digital technology, I'm an idiot, okay? And he comes to my level, he uses an example that I can relate to with architecture to describe, and I just love that Luke is going to do that for us this morning. Um, Look at, oh gosh, I'm not even there. You guys are probably already in Luke, aren't you? Luke chapter 1. Look at verses 26 to 45. Luke is going to describe the conception and the pregnancy of Mary. Uh, I, I'm not going to read all of these because you guys know these, but I'll, we'll go through these um, as verses. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. You shall conceive in your womb and bear a son. That's very human, isn't it? The conception, the womb, a son. In verse 34, she says to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? That's very human, isn't it? That's a a very real dynamic that she has to understand or ask. How is this going to be possible? Because in human terms, it hasn't happened yet. Watch this. Verse 39. Now at this time Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. The reason I wanted to highlight that for a second is we've seen over here when Luke begins to talk about Mary's conception and pregnancy, he emphasizes womb a couple of times. He's very, very clear in saying that she is going to be with child, and the child is going to be in her womb. And then when Luke even transitions and tells the story about Mary and Elizabeth coming together, even though he makes reference to the baby, John the Baptist, leaping for joy in Elizabeth's womb, it's important for him to recount this story and even refer to Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth's response is, Blessed is your womb, Mary. Isn't that interesting? And so you see this this repetition of even the idea of a womb, which is very, very natural, right? It's very human that mothers carry babies in wombs. Very physician-like. Turn to chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now it came about in those days that a decree 
went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius, the governor of Syria, uh, was governor, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to the firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, that story, that idea of no room at the inn is is prevalent in our understanding of the birth narrative, right? Luke's the one that records it, that's it. Isn't that wild? I mean, there are details that we just know by heart of the story of the nativity that we get only from Luke. And so we see here in verse 5, Luke says, Mary was with child. Very human. In verse 6, he says, the days were completed for her to give birth. What does that mean? That's the gestation period, right, ladies? There is a period of days that need to be complete before delivery. Some more agonist than others, right? I look over there, and one's a little bit late, one's in a hurry. One definitely didn't. One came on time. One didn't want to come out at all. One did the best thing she could, last last ditch effort the night before to just roll around in there to just prevent coming out naturally. Troublemaker ever since. Verse seven. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger. Because there was no room at the end. Look at how natural this account is. Look at these natural human details. She wraps him in cloths. He's laying in a manger. And we get the information that there was no room at the end. That's very carnal, isn't it? Verse 12, it's repeated. We didn't read that yet, but in verse 12... It's repeated. And this will be a sign for you. You will, be, you will find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in the manger. He repeats that to the angels. This is how you're going to know. There's going to be very natural signs, very human signs for you to follow and, and, and recognize this is the sign. This is the Messiah. Look at verse 16. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. Very natural setting, very human description. We get this repetition by Luke. A baby, a child, a manger, wrapped in cloths. You know, it's not the splendorous, splendiferous, splendor, no, of Matthew, you know, celebrating a king with magi coming and everything else. It's a lowly story in hay, in manger, no room at an inn. It's very, very human. And in verse 17, And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told about them. 
about this child. Had been told them about this child. We get that repetition again. Look at verses 21 to 38. And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. So we'll stop there for just a second. Verse 21 says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, which is perfectly according to Jewish custom. Ladies, we talked about that gestation period. When Mary's days were complete, she gave delivery. She delivered. Let me tell you, circumcision is a very natural human thing. On the eighth day, just as the law prescribed, they took him to the temple, had him circumcised, named him Jesus. And notice what Luke says. He was given the name that he was given even before conceived in the womb. Again, this reference to conception, this reference to the womb, this reference to circumcision. Verse 22. When the days of Mary's purification were complete, they brought him for dedication. Purification is also a very natural aspect of humanity that Luke chooses to record for us as part of this birth narrative. Verse 23, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be, what? Dedicated to the Lord. Jesus was dedicated to the Lord just as the law prescribed as the firstborn male. A very natural, a very human experience. Look at verse 39. We're going to see Luke describe a very real process that Jesus went through growing up as a kid. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And verse 40, And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So he continued to grow just like we do. He continued to gain knowledge, wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So Luke is revealing that Jesus, as a human, had a very natural growth process, just like ours. Jump over to verse 42. Verse 41, And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy 
Oh, look at that, the boy. Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan, and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about after, that after three days they had found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the statement at that time which he had made to them. And he went down with them. And came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor of, in favor with God and men. So it says that he continued to grow. When he was 12, Luke tells us, he got lost. Lost. Reminds me of Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade at the beginning. He's with his Boy Scout troop. And they go into a cave. He and his buddy, and when they come out, the troop's gone. He looks around and he goes, everybody's lost but us. You know, it says that Joseph and Mary lost their son Jesus, but we know Jesus said, well, why did you think I was lost? Where did you expect me to be? I'm in my father's house. He was in the temple. And he was learning. He was asking questions. And they were amazed, like Mark told us when he went in and taught in the temple and in the synagogue. He taught with such great authority. So here at age 12, he's amazing people with his questions. But Luke is very specific to let us know that he was growing up as a child. And that at age 12, he was in the temple. Found him listening. I thought something else was interesting. Look at verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. He continued to obey his parents. That's a very natural, very human, and hopefully a very childlike behavior. I got some kids smiling. Addie. (laughs) This is the God of the universe, right? This is God in flesh who is subject to Mary and Joseph as a child. What a great example of 100% human and 100% God. And in verse 52, Luke reminds us once again that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So he's growing wiser, he's getting more knowledge, and he's growing up. It says in stature, he's getting bigger. He's growing just like you and I do as humans. Now, verse 21 through 38 of chapter 3. Turn to chapter 3, verse 21 through 38. Now it came about when all the people were baptized, that Jesus also was baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. 
then in verse 23, And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And then we have the genealogy that Luke gives for Jesus. But in verse 21 and 22, it says that Jesus was baptized. Now, as God, Jesus did not need to symbolically wash his sins away, nor did he need to confess himself as Lord and Savior. That's what we do. That's what baptism is for us, right? It is a public declaration that we have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior in our hearts, right? We're telling the world, this is who I am. Jesus didn't have to say, I'm putting my faith and trust in myself. But we see that he went under the waters of baptism to show obedience as an example. That's a very human thing. As 100% God, he didn't really need to do baptism, but he did as a man, as a human. He exhibited obedience. Look at what Luke tells us in verse 23. It says that when he began his public ministry, he was, what? About 30 years of age. So Luke has told us something about Jesus on the eighth day, being dedicated and circumcised and named. He tells us that at age 12, he was in the temple, got lost. And he tells us that at age 30, he began his ministry. What an interesting set of details that Luke chooses to give to us to help remind us that Jesus was growing in stature and he was human just like us. And then we see something very similar in Luke's genealogy of Jesus. When you get down to the bottom in verse 38, he's walked us all the way back through the lineage of Jesus, and he says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and the son of God. You might recall that Matthew's genealogy focused on Jesus in the lineage of David to reinforce his heirship to the throne, to reinforce his kingship, and also his lineage back to Abraham to reinforce that he was set apart from all the nations of the world, that he was God's chosen. Here we see Luke take it all the way back to Adam. Luke is focusing and reinforcing the humanity of Jesus. So we see, just as the other Gospels highlighted Jesus' divinity, Luke places this strong emphasis on Jesus' humanity. He grew up just like we do. Um, we'll say he ate fish with friends just like we did, like we do. He walked and talked with his friends. He obeyed his parents. He obeyed the customs and the traditions. And in Matthew 13, we're reminded that when Jesus was teaching and the crowd saw it, they said, isn't this Joseph the carpenter's son? Very natural. Very human. Doesn't he have brothers and sisters that we know? They said. One of my favorite aspects of C.S. Lewis, and Matt will relate to this, he often wrote that um, longing to know God cannot be satisfied merely through human efforts. 
Uh, and he often gave this example that uh, if Hamlet were to ever know Shakespeare, it would mean that Shakespeare would have to write himself into the story. If Hamlet were to ever know Shakespeare, Shakespeare would have to write himself into the story with Hamlet. And this is, in a sense, the crux of Christianity, right? That's the story of Emmanuel, God with us. The artist has inserted himself into the painting. The playwright has inserted himself into the script. The cinematographer has inserted himself into his own film. And I'll say the author here has written himself into his story of redemption so that we could know him personally. The God of the universe has written himself, has inserted himself into his story of redemption personally so that we could know him. Now, I said the last part that we would look at is the us. God with us. And I think what we'll focus on this morning is the strife and the turmoil that God inserted himself into in order to come and reverse the curse of sin and the condemnation that we all face apart from salvation in Christ Jesus. Turn back to John chapter 1. So we saw that Jesus is divine. We saw that Jesus is human. He is God. He was with. And then let's look at us for a moment. John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 says that he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who who were his own did not receive him. That's the condition that the God-man Emmanuel, God with us, inserted himself into. Inserted himself into an environment of sin and brokenness where he was rejected and despised. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. That's the condition that the God of the universe inserted himself into. That the God-man subjected himself to the hatred, the rejection. You think about what that looked like practically. His friend, friend sold him for 30 pieces of silver. That's what the us looks like. He was paraded before the legal authorities, punched in the face, and spat upon. That's what the us looks like. He was made to wear a crown of thorns, 
Um, He was rejected by the crowds. His friends all scattered during the night. He was whipped. He was nailed to the cross. Insults were hurled from the base of the cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. That's what the us looks like. The last thing we'll look at this morning is Isaiah. We're going to look at three passages briefly in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7. This is the verse we began with. Chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Turn to chapter 9. David shared this passage with us last week. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God will be the one to do this. Those are two very promising prophecies, aren't they? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Chapter 52, we'll begin in verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper... He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than, any, more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Sounds very human, doesn't it? Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Very natural. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This is the humanity that Jesus inserted himself into. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And then we'll finish this up with verse 12. Therefore I will lot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That was a long passage. But that's the prophecy of the suffering servant. The God-man who inserted himself into the story of redemption, Jesus, who was 100% God, the only appropriate sacrifice, the only one who could pay the penalty for our sins and redeem us back to our Creator. And he had to do it as a human with flesh and blood like you and I. And he had to be the object of hatred and to be despised, and to be rejected, as Isaiah prophesied. But that's not where the story ends. Emmanuel, God with us, means that the God-man rose out of the grave, walked out once again, and becomes victorious over sin and death. And so what we celebrate on Christmas is that night that God willingly chose to be like us, but without sin. To be 100% God, 100% man. To live among us. To willfully take on the hatred that was caused by the brokenness of sin. The breach that occurred in the garden. He reversed it through his own death so that we can walk and talk and be in perfect fellowship with God again. We've been given God's Holy Spirit. We have a direct line of access now. And that all began back in Genesis, continued on on Christmas night, and was finished when he walked out of that grave.